If you would, turn in your Bibles to um, Exodus chapter 22. Uh, Exodus 22, if you're using a pew chair Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 63. Uh, this morning we'll look at verses, um, uh, the end of 22 and the beginning of 23. So we'll begin uh, 22.16. Uh, down to 23.9. Um, so uh, we, we normally stand when we read God's word together. Um, and I recognize this might be on the verge, but uh, let me ask that you stand if you're able uh, as, we, um, as we read this passage together. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. He shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons, you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent. And righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, grow us. By this, your word, to the honor and glory of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) 
you have to um, you have to love coming to passages that, on their the face of them, at first glance, seem like a random collection of verses that have very little, if anything at all, to do with each other. Um, how you can go from seemingly one subject to the next, to the next, to the next, uh, and uh, you kind of lose the sense of uh, the maybe the way the the passage is unfolding. For that matter, we're we're in that sort of that section of Exodus, the the, the book of the covenant, the case laws, the the expounding and applying of the Ten Commandments into the daily life of uh, the Israelite. And so you might expect that you would unpack them in the order that they're given. Well, let's deal with the case laws for the first commandment. Let's deal with the case laws for the second commandment. Let's deal with the case laws for the third commandment. The problem is they're not that discreet. They're not that um, individual. They overlap far more than that. And so you can have the first and the seventh and the ninth all woven into one case law because they all apply. And what we find in this passage is, I think there's been a, actually a, a fairly logical flow to the order of these case laws. They're not, they're not following the, the order of the Ten Commandments, which is what my brain would want to hear. But they deal first with Laws dealing with crimes against people. It started there. Some cases, death was involved. Sometimes it was just personal injury. But it started with case laws dealing with crimes against humanity, mankind. Then we moved to laws, crime, laws dealing with crimes against man's stuff, personal property laws. Now we move into sort of relationship laws. We deal with, with well, social justice. That's a, that's a term that's become popular in the last few years. Um, let me warn you, first of all, we can't just automatically take today's term and drop it back into the Old Testament and say, well, then this is what this is about. The, the heading you have in your Bible, A, is not inspired, and B, was there long before social justice became a conversation in the 21st century world. And yet, this passage does deal with social justice. Justice that is interactive, that has to do with our relationships with each other. And first, I want you to see that a right understanding of social justice begins with giving to God what we owe Him. Does that sound like an odd place to start in social justice conversations? You see, the commandments aren't that discreet. The first commandment, the second commandment, the third, the first three commandments have something to say about our relationship with each other. They're not so vertical that they have no bearing on each on us whatsoever. But first, social justice begins with giving a right understanding of social justice begins with giving to God what we owe him. Look at verses 18 to 20. In verse 18, you have this seemingly random warning that a sorceress uh, is not allowed to live. Now, there are 
there is a sorcery word that is masculine that's in other parts of the Bible. And, and in that sense, the Old Testament always condemns magic and sorcery of that kind. It just so happens that the word here happens to be, to be feminine. And so you get the sorceress word, uh, which is um, you know, the feminine form of magician, sorcery, practicer. Um, but yet the command is the same. The one who practices sorcery uh, is not to live. The Israelites understood sorcery. They'd, they'd seen it before. In fact, you and I have seen it already in Exodus, right? Do you remember when Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said, hey, look, let my people go. And Moses throws the staff down and turns into a serpent and he picks it up again by the tail. I would have been out of the room at that point. Grabs it by the tail, picks it up. It turns back into a staff. And so Pharaoh called his magicians. He called his sorcery practicers and said, hey, guys, y'all do this. And they did by their their secret arts, we're told in Exodus 7, verse 11. But why is that forbidden? And why does that show up here? Because the reality is magic is not a right understanding of how God works in this world. You and I, and this, this, this may be a bit of a leap from sorcery in this verse to sort of how we, but you and I can have a tendency sometimes to, to treat even prayer or scripture quoting as almost a magic incantation as though there's an obligation. That I say the words and poof it happens as though the words have the power, my words have the power because I said it. But we all know of things we've prayed for. That Paul has prayed for and never got the answer he wanted. And so there's this warning that, um, that, that sorcery, that magic, because it's a false religion, it's actually a violation of the first commandment. As a false religion, it is forbidden. And so those who practice magic and sorcery um, are not to live. It's a wrong understanding of how God works in this world. For that matter, you see in verse 20, the same sort of idea. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than Yahweh alone, other than the Lord alone, he shall be devoted to destruction. You're making a sacrifice. You're offering to one of the, the false gods around Israel. When Israel gets, when, when the Israelites, when these redeemed people uh, get into the promised land, there will be all kinds of ites around them with all their different kinds of Baal and, and all their false gods and idols and all their false worship practices. And, and God simply reminds them that you shall offer sacrifice to me and to me alone. You could, and, and perhaps rightly should, even understand this verse in light of, and we did this all through the Ten Commandments. We've stopped since then. Probably shame on me for stopping. But we should. this should remind us of the first two verses of Exodus 20, right? Why would we offer sacrifices to other gods when this is the one who actually brought us out of bondage, out of slavery, delivered us out of Egypt and is taking us to the promised land. And then you get there and say, hey, thanks, but I'm going to go worship 
these other gods instead. And so, ultimately, we are not to rob God of the glory that he deserves. To offer sacrifices to these other Canaanite gods is to rob God of the glory that he alone deserves as creator and as redeemer. So the connection for verses 18 to 20 have to do with the first commandment and our duty to God. And yet there's this verse 19 in the middle of it that sounds like seventh commandment only lying with an animal. But the reality is these false religions, uh, bestiality was a part of their sacrificial system and, and worship. And so uh, the connection for verse 19 seems to be in the context of worshiping God, the one true God, rightly, according to his commandments, uh, commands and him alone. Pagan worship often involved all sorts of aberrant sexuality. And so this passage warns that, first of all, we must give to God what rightly belongs to Him and to Him alone. And with that, it makes sense that those who... Worship other gods who turn their backs on the one true God who has created them and redeemed them. It makes sense that the death penalty is the right, appropriate punishment. Is that not true of us? When we worship ourselves, we're committing cosmic treason. We're, we're guilty of treason against the triune God of heaven and earth. That sin deserves death. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It's true of all of us. The, the reality is God will not share his glory. God will not share his praise. He alone is creator. He alone has redeemed them from bondage in slave, and slavery in Egypt. He alone redeems us and we owe him everything and him alone. You see this again down in verses 28 to 30. In verse 28 to 30, we're, we're told, do not curse God, do not revile God, uh, nor curse a ruler of the people. The Hebrew of this, of this sentence, is, of this verse is interesting, if nothing else. Um, but literally, it's, it's um, uh, God you will not revile, a ruler of the people you will not curse. So it's got this parallel, which almost seems to communicate that, that the people who are rulers over God's people, are put there by God himself. And it's their job to represent God to the people and the people to God. He's given them that position. He's given them that authority, that role. And so God is our creator and redeemer. We are not to curse him, to revile him, to yell out in anger at him, quite honestly. But worship also means, verses 29 and 30, giving him what we owe. Whether it's our firstborn, whether it's 
the fullness of our harvest, the overflow of our presses, the firstborn of our animals, they're all dedicated to God. And so we owe to him, we give to him what we owe. Notice the verse, the verb in verse 29, you shall not delay. You watch, we, um, Bingley, our golden retriever, knows that there are certain outside toys that he's not allowed to bring inside. And, and, and he comes to the door and you're walking in with him and he's carrying the toy in his mouth. It's an old Frisbee that's really just a hoop now. Or it's a, a chunk of wood that came off the bottom of the Christmas tree that he just likes to hold in his mouth. Cute dog. Um, but he does this thing where if he really, really wants the thing in his mouth, he comes to the door and you open the door and you say, Bingley, leave it. And, and, and he doesn't. And so you kind of pull the door back to a little bit. And he has this circle he walks around our little front porch. Okay, I'm not, I can't go in with this. I really want this. I'm not going in. I'm going to make a lap. So he makes a circle around the front porch, comes back to the front door, and you, you kind of open the door and you kind of close it. And he knows. You don't have to say it again. He knows. That's why he's making the lap. He, he's delaying doing what we want him to do because of what he wants to do. Do not delay giving to God what we owe. What does that delay mean? That delay means, but I mean... God, I like this. I really kind of want it for myself. That delay is an indication that our heart is kind of thinking, this doesn't seem fair. Or I'm not really interested in obeying your command right now, God. I kind of want to keep this for me. Do not delay because when we delay, we're actually saying, I want to be in charge. And not you. So we make a lap around the porch. Let's delay just a little longer and see if he changes his mind. Social justice begins with giving to God what we owe to him. Second, social justice means caring for those who are easily exploited. Um, verses 16 and 17. A man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed. And already, we've got to give caveats. Number one, uh, this isn't rape. Rape is dealt with in other passages. Deuteronomy 22, uh, you can go and read the punishment for rape. The punishment for rape is death. Uh, that's not this. Uh, second of all, notice the woman is described as not betrothed. So she's not engaged. By the way, betrothed in the Old Testament is, let's see, stronger than our engagement. Um, and here's why. Because if she's engaged, if she's betrothed, then, she's, then they're both actually guilty of adultery. And so Deuteronomy 22 also deals with that. Um, and how, you know, what the, what the punishment is for the both of them if, uh, if she's actually guilty of uh, adultery, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, if they're in the city and and um, then then he 
is to be stoned. Um, she's stoned because she didn't cry for help. He's stoned because he violated his neighbor's wife. Though she's betrothed. So betrothal in the Old Testament is stronger than, um, than our idea of engagement. So this is neither rape nor adultery. So it's consensual sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Notice the consequences. Notice the effects. Because of their act, they're considered one flesh, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. And so he must pay the bride price. He pays her father the, the going rate for virgins in Israel between Egypt and the promised land for whatever the day. Like the opposite of the dowry, I guess. But he's, he's paying her dad the price for her hand in marriage. The two are one flesh. They are, they are considered married. There is a chance, however, the father has the right to say, look, you've already proven you don't care about my daughter's holiness. You don't care about my daughter's purity. I'm not going to let you marry her. He still has to pay the bride price nonetheless. It's an application of the seventh commandment, which ultimately teaches that sexual intercourse is essentially a sacrament of the marriage covenant and belongs within the context of marriage only. But here's the catch. This woman, who now is not a virgin, if her father doesn't let him her marry him, if, if he doesn't allow their marriage, her prospects are greatly diminished, if not completely eliminated. If he, the father chooses not to bless the union, then the man still has to pay the bride price, but yet now she's almost unmarriable because her prospects are greatly reduced or even eliminated. That puts this woman at a, in a precarious position, right? She has no job. She has no husband. And so the law is written to protect someone who's, who needs protecting, who's easily exploited. And so the law, God gives this law to protect this woman. There's a, another group, verses 21 to 27, of potentially mistreated and exploited people. Uh, and we have these laws concerning orphans, widows, and sojourners. And that phrase almost becomes uh, an idiom in the Old Testament for, um, for anybody who is downtrodden. Orphans, widows, and sojourners. Israel understood what it meant to be people not in their home. They just spent 400 years as a people not in their home. They just spent 400 years in slavery, in exile, as, as temporary residents of Egypt. And now here we are eight, nine weeks since they were delivered. So they understood what it meant to be a, a stranger in a strange place. 
They were mistreated there. And so the warnings for how uh, Israel is to treat these sojourners, these these strangers in their land, is always, always reminds them of how they were mistreated in Egypt. And so you're not going to be like that. You're going to treat the, the wandering and the wayward and the, the temporary the way God would, not the way Egypt would. The fatherless and widows are vulnerable. They have no income. Their safety is at risk. Uh, their need would make them particularly vulnerable to being exploited, to high rates of interest when people loan them money. You see, that's what you do, right? You prey on people in need. And you loan them money at interest rates that, that no sane human would ever pay unless you really have no choice. And so that's the, the warning then for lending money, verse 25, to anyone who is poor. Don't be like the money lender who, who exacts this exorbitant interest rate from them. In fact, even if they give you collateral, if they give you their cloak as collateral for, for their debt, that evening before it gets really cold, you take it back to them. That's how they're to, to treat the poor, the needy. James one twenty seven picks up on this. It reminds us that really true religion, that pure religion is looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Do I need to remind you that it actually seems like that's the context for the creation of the office of deacon in Acts 6? Widows whose needs weren't being met. And so the congregation said, hey, apostles, this is falling through the cracks. And the apostles said, let's form this office of deacon and we'll give them the responsibility of looking after the orphans within the church fellowship or the, the widows within the church fellowship. So these laws are written to protect those who need protecting But I want you to notice verses 24 and 27. You get a glimpse of not just God's will and mind, which is kind of how we think of laws. But in verses 24 and 27, you get a glimpse of his heart. Because notice how verse 27 is written. Verse, I mean, 24, 23. Uh, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword. Verse 27, um, you get the same sort of, if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. All the other punishments come from man. All the other crimes that we deal with, we're told if someone does this, you do this to them, except here. Widows, orphans, sojourners, the poor. God says, I'm going to take care of this one. My heart goes out to those in need, so much so that if you mistreat them, not only am I their... Um, your prosecutor, I'm also their protector. 
What a great picture of the heart of God to those potentially endangered, those potentially exploited, those most likely to be taken advantage of. Social justice begins with giving to God what He is due. Social justice means uh, caring for those who are easily exploited. And then lastly, social justice must be that. It must be just. Notice what happens in verses in chapter 23, verses 1 to 9. The scene sort of changes. And you end up in what seems like a courtroom. You know, you know Lady Justice, right? You know the statue? Um, you know, if she were if she were a real human. She'd have one giant arm. She'd be like one of those crabs. Because she's holding scales out in front of her. You know how hard it is to hold a weight out in front of you, right? That, that Her arm would be huge. This one would be all small because she's not doing anything with it, really. right? She's holding the scales in front of her. Those scales balancing, weighing the, the pros and the cons, the word of this group versus the word of that group and in order to see where the truth is, comparing all the details to the truth and balancing, weighing them out to figure out who's guilty and who's not and who owes what and who doesn't. But she's blindfolded. You know why she's blindfolded. The implication is it doesn't matter who's in the room. It doesn't matter who comes before the bench. It doesn't matter who's on trial. Rich, poor, old, young, male, female. None of that's supposed to matter to justice. She merely blindfoldedly evaluates the truth. And what Scripture does for us in chapter 23 is remind us that justice must be just. It must be rooted and grounded in facts and truth and not in the people who bring the cases uh, against one another. We have these warnings in ver- verses 1 to 9 of chapter 23 that, um, th- that you're not supposed to be in cahoots with people to, to, to get the poor guy or to get the bad guy or to get the mean guy. Or to get the quiet guy. Like, none of those things matter. That ultimately what matters is the truth. We must seek the truth and the facts, not revenge. Notice, for example, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. They don't get perverted law, perverted rulings just because they're poor. But, verse 8, neither shall the wealthy, neither shall you take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Notice that regardless of whether you're wealthy and can buy your, your judgment or poor, and so we assume you're guilty. None of those things work in the court of law. For, in fact, turn with me for a second. Let me just show you real quick um, how this plays out in Leviticus 19. Justice is blind, we're told, in Exodus 23 and then now in, in Leviticus 19. Justice is blind to the financial status of the person in the room. 
Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You see the temptation, right? Because someone's poor, they're guilty. Because someone's poor, it doesn't matter what the truth is, we have to look out for them and protect them. You see, either one of those could be a perversion of justice. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. The financial status of the person on trial has no bearing on the facts of the case. The same is true for the sojourner. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. I mean, they're foreigners. They probably are here to rob us anyway. All they're here for is, is all the, you know, to, to exploit us and somehow they're going to take information back. They're going to cause us trouble. They're, going to, they're only here up to no good anyway. They're foreigners. And, and so we're going to mistreat them because we don't have to mistreat our fellow, our fellow Jewish person, our fellow Israelite. We'll, we'll mistreat the stranger, the alien. God says, look, just, just because they're a sojourner doesn't mean they're guilty. For that matter, you know what it's like to have been mistreated wrongly. Don't turn around and do that to the sojourner yourself. Justice is blind to the financial status of the person in the room. Justice is blind to the nationality of the person in the room. Justice is blind, well, deaf. That maybe the blindfold covers her ears up too, is is blind to the volume of the voices. We we live in social media world. The voices go from dead silent, not knowing anything at all, to eleven in a moment. Jumping on social media, crying in outrage, calling for justice to be served on the person we're pretty sure is guilty. They sure look guilty. There can't be any other reason but this. So we owe them. Notice verse 2. You will not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. The reality is, sometimes you and I are called to be the lone voice. You know this. I can't find people that I work with who will say no to the boss for cooking the books. I can't find people I work with who will, who will do what is right, who will stand on what is true, but instead, for the sake of going in with the crowd, going in with the sheer volume of the voices, they will, uh, despite the fact that they claim to be Christians, they'll turn their backs on God's law in a moment. I can't find friends at school who pray and who love Jesus. Sometimes we have to be the lone voice. This is where, this is where uh, one of our favorite, favorite Scottish Presbyterians, John Knox, comes in handy. A man with God is always in the majority. We may be the lone voice, but we're not alone. A man with God is always in the majority. The reality is that that earthly human majority doesn't rule. God's word 
rules. His word is truth. And we're called to a life of justice rooted in, grounded in the truth of God's commands. Social justice begins with giving to God what he is due. Uh, It means caring for those who are easily exploited and social justice must be just. Let me just make this one um, application to us today. Let me remind you uh, that we don't take Old Testament Israel and say, okay, in the 21st century, that's the United States. That's not the trajectory. That's not the, the translation. That's not the parallel. That's not the connection that the New Testament makes. The New Testament tells us Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. Which means that we as believers, we the church have a, a responsibility to care for those who are poor, who are hurting, who are most easily exploited by the selfishness of the world around us. Regardless of who they are, where they're from, their social status, their financial status, we don't examine the bank account. Our job is to seek truth and justice grounded in God's Word to the honor and glory of God. And the way we treat sojourners, orphans, Widows, the way we look after those in distress. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you fight for what is right and what is true. That you defend the fatherless, you defend the defenseless, you defend orphans and widows and sojourners. Father, we pray that that we would be believers. We would be your children who, as we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, we too look after the needs of orphans and widows and sojourners. That we seek the truth. That we seek to honor and glorify you in everything that we do. That in every relationship, in every conduct, in every interaction with other people and with the things of this world, we would do them all for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.